0: Please be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4 as we continue with our study of this beautiful story, narrative of God's love for uh, the world that he sent his only begotten son that we might believe and therefore have everlasting life. As you're turning there, I'm also going to do something that's not scripted, but I'm going to ask if Ron Paul would come up to the front. I saw him here earlier. He doesn't know that we're putting him on the spot. Is he even, uh-huh. At the end of December, Ron asked the session if he would be able to kind of step aside from his role as an elder. He has been uh, going to be traveling a lot and didn't feel that he was going to be able to do that. And the elders not only begrudgingly accepted that, but with, um, without any hesitation, we... Uh, elected him to what's known as elder emeritus, meaning elder with merit. Basically, that's known as the Hall of Fame uh, for elders. It's facetious uh, somewhat. Uh, We have Dan Caprio and Dalton Hilton who already are elders emeritus in our church, and Ron now has that as well. Ron was uh, traveling, as he promised he would be, during our congregational meeting, so we weren't able to recognize him, but Ron, I wanted to give this to you on behalf of the church as an expression of our appreciation. Thank you for both your service and for your example of godliness to us at all times. Thank you very much. Thank you. The passage that we have this morning from John chapter 4 is one that is familiar to a number of people, Jesus' encounter with a woman at, at the well. Many Bible scholars tell us that this, John put this here in a, in, a, in a powerfully powerful way, positioned to be able to compare with what took place at the beginning of chapter 3. Because in chapter three we see Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, Nicodemus representing the best that humanity has to offer. The teacher of teachers in Israel, a Pharisee who was meticulous about keeping God's law, wanting to know what God's word said as a protector and a teacher of it and yet he still didn't understand the nature of God's grace. Now we come to a woman of we'll say questionable reputation although there wasn't any question about it as we'll see uh, in our narrative. And she, too, has the same problem that the most righteous person does, which is she's alienated from God and is in need of God's gift of grace. putting these two things together, we see that God is at work, and he works with all of us in the same way through his gift to us in Jesus Christ. And as we work our way through this passage this morning, my prayer is that we would see the unfolding beauty of the narrative as John has painted it for us. Our reading begins in verse 1 of John chapter 4. We'll read through verse 15 this morning. Uh, the whole narrative continues on for, uh, and we'll be breaking this passage up in uh, over a couple of weeks. Next week, this is week, we're focusing on living water. Next week, we'll, we'll talk about living worship. The week after that, we're going to drive you, oh, those of you with OCD um, crazy uh, because of the snow, What should have been uh, living witness, but I've got to be out of town, so campers is going to preach out of order. Um And then we'll come back to the living witness after that. So we'll ask forgiveness for those of you. Counseling is available for some of you. So (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, he gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here. To draw water. The word of our God. Let's ask our Lord to speak to us during this moment, this time we have. Father, we do thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself and even uh, uh, laid out for us, ourselves, in the pages of your word. Pray now that as we consider this interaction, you would not only open our minds to see what you have recorded, but open our hearts to Allow your truth to permeate every aspect of our being. That we might be comforted, challenged, and shaped by the beauty and the power of your gospel. Becoming more like Christ and becoming sources and resources that you use to bring joy and refreshment and renewal to our community and even to the world. This we pray. For you to do, for we cannot. Pray in the name of Christ Jesus for his glory. Amen. Robert Frost famously penned the words Two roads diverged in a wood, and I I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Now, I will leave it to you English majors to interpret that I thought it was relatively clear. I read an article recently that tells me that there was an English scholar from some northeastern college that said, while this may be among the most well-known poems in America, most of us interpret it wrongly. It bored me so I didn't bother seeing how he would interpret it, but again, I'll leave that to those of you who are into that kind of stuff because I really don't care how he's interpreting it, because what I'm interested in is the imagery here that lends itself to the message that we have here this morning. Because the imagery is a painting, a picture, that we come to a point where a road forks and we have to make a choice between two paths. And the reality is, is that all of us who consider ourselves to be Christians, we have two paths. There are two courses of our lives that are always before us, and we must make a choice, which is an ultimate choice, and we must be making that choice on a daily basis. Which path is it that we will choose and that we will follow? Now, one of the paths is a path that is safe. It's like a, a golf cart path. The other path is one that is challenging, at times even uncomfortable and dangerous, more like taking a hike on the Appalachian Trail. But the one is accomplished only, when we commit ourselves to be free from hardship. In other words, we are willing to shrink our hearts and care only about our comforts and maybe the people who will bring us comfort, the people that we care most about, but not have a lot of concern for anyone else. And the other is rather than being free from hardship is faithful in heartache. It is one that is concerned and has compassion on other people. And if your heart is broad enough and big enough and you are engaged in enough relationships or you're concerned about people anywhere, then your heart will one day ache because we live in a broken world and we harm one another and we harm ourselves. But we have those two paths to choose from and I think that most American evangelicals are inclined to choose the path of the golf cart. Good things, busy things, and maybe express our concern in a certain way, but primary motivation is let's take the path that will bring us the most pleasure, but the reality is that path is a cul-de-sac, it leads to nowhere. The other reality is we need to understand this, if we call ourselves Christians, there's only one of these paths that Jesus himself walks, and it's not the cul-de-sac, it is not the easy golf cart path, it is a difficult, it is a dangerous, it is a challenging path, One that opens his heart and requires those who will follow him to open their heart to other people as well. We see in this passage before us, Jesus is on a journey. He is taking that path that brings both discomfort to his disciples, stretches them beyond where they even wanted to go. Perhaps even where they thought they could go because they never even comprehended or considered that this is a possibility for them. They become really a picture of us as we seek to follow Jesus, because in this passage, as we work our way through it, we will see this, that on the way, Jesus, there is no barrier that Jesus will not cross and knock down in order to give the gift of God to people who are hungering and thirsting and are in need. Now, when we look at this particular passage, what we see first is Jesus crossing boundaries, and we see three boundaries that Jesus crosses. We see him crossing first a geographical boundary, we then will see him crossing a social boundary, and then we will see him crossing a relational boundary. All of those are necessary and prerequisite to giving uh, the gift that he needs to give to people who are in need. So we begin with the geographic boundary and we see an interesting phrase in verse 4 here. Jesus has already talked about them being tired, but in verse 4, We're told, and he had to pass through Samaria. Most interesting is the word had there. He had to do this. Now, you may ask, what makes that particularly interesting? That's not that uncommon. Well, if you were to, you know, and and particularly that would be reinforced if you were to look in the back of your Bibles where you have maps and see that where these were situated. He was in Judea and he was going to make his way to Galilee, and in that one region, you've got Samaria as a big lump right in between them, and since the straight, you know, the quickest way one place to another is the straight line, it would make sense that you would go through Samaria. So the fact that he had to, that doesn't, that, that wouldn't strike us except for this. There were other routes, and no self-respecting Jew would ever go through Samaria. They would always take that other route. Rather than going through Samaria for generations, ever since uh, uh, people moved back uh, after the exile, the Jewish people would make their way down to the Jordan Valley and they would trace their way along the river and they would come back up and they would go from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea and they wouldn't set one foot into Samaria. They believed if they did, they would get cooties just like you do it in the second grade. It was unclean and even just by touching any part of it, it would make them unclean. And so they meticulously and they religiously would make their circuitous route as an expression of their religious and their racial bigotry. Now, it's helpful to understand the history, to understand why they felt this way and how significant of a barrier that it is that Jesus is crossing. It wasn't always this way. When God brought his people into the land of promise, in that center area, later it became Samaria, but the central region was not only central geographically, but to the life of Israel primary tribe there was Ephraim, and from that tribe, a number of the influential and significant leaders and, and um, protectors uh, lived, and so it was a central place, of, uh, a central spot for all of Israel, geographically and in their, in their life. But after the reigns of David and Solomon a- as kings, the nation divided the 10 Northern tribes kind of rejected against the rule of the Southern tribes and Judah, which was the tribe of both David and Solomon. And they set up a nation of their own. They were able to call themselves Israel. Basically, it wasn't that difficult to figure out how they divided it up. There were 12 tribes, 10 seceded. They said, 10 is more than two. We win the popular vote. We're now, we're still Israel. You find a new name. Of the two remaining tribes, a significant, the, the larger of the two by a significant amount was Judah, so they all came together and the two tribes voted and surprisingly Judah won. So that's how they got their thing. Not everything is mysterious in the Bible. But the northern country of Israel very quickly turned to idolatry. They continued to worship God, but they also began worshiping other gods, and so Uh, They became also very corrupt and they were perverted. Their culture also declined very quickly as well. And now being in decline, they were vulnerable for attack and the Assyrian nation came and attacked and conquered the uh, Israel, the 10 tribes, the northern tribes, and made them part of their own nation. Later, Judah would also fall to the Babylonians and they would be sent into exile. But at this point in time you had Judah that still existed and then the Assyrians reigned over uh, this area that would later become Samaria. Now when the Assyrians would take over a country, they had a strategic way of benefiting from the economy and making sure that they weren't going to have a rebellion against them. They would scatter many of the people who were there. They would make sure any of the military leaders, any of the political leaders, anybody who had aspirations for leadership, they would be split up and not be able to play together because that would be dangerous. A couple of ambitious people with military capability, they might be able to get an army and then at the very least create an inconvenience, if not be able to take their territory back. So the Assyrians would scatter the people all over to the territories that were their own, but they would also leave some of the people in the land. Usually they were people that didn't have any real influence or power, they just knew how to work the land, make sure things go. And this way the economy would continue and Assyrians would benefit from the economy. And they were not any threat of losing their territory. So it seems like a brilliant uh, strategy in a way to assimilate uh, new cultures. And so having this happen, now you had the people left over in what is now, uh, they had become Samaria, were the leftovers, the people who were allowed to stay, and then some Assyrians, it now was Assyrian property, and so they came and some of the Assyrians decided they liked their real estate, real estate was cheaper there, they would move in and they moved in as well. And the Assyrians took people from the other conquered areas, and they would, as they were scattering them, they would put some of them into this territory as well. And so over time, the people began to intermarry, the people who had been part of Israel, the Assyrians, and the other conquered areas. And so the area of Samaria was basically a mongrelized race and religion. And they did continue to worship the God of Israel, even as they adopted all of the other gods of the conquered nations, But at least from a pretense standpoint, the God of Israel was the one who was above all because even the other nations and the Assyrians didn't want to make the local God angry, so they propped him up as the figurehead of their civil religion. Now, after Judah had gone in exile and some of the people had come back, they just totally despised the Assyrians for being unclean, compromised, um, you know, half-breeds. And because they were not true to their heritage and to worshiping the one true God alone, they were unclean, and according to Jewish tradition, anything unclean makes anything that comes into contact with it unclean as well. And so therefore, the Jewish people not only despised, but would have nothing to do with any Assyrian people. They would walk, they would inconvenience themselves, they would go at great lengths to avoid having any contact with Samaritan people or even the land of Samaria. And so it's all the more amazing that here in this text John says Jesus had to go through Samaria when everyone knew that just wasn't the way things worked. So we can ask our a question then why did John say that Jesus had to go through Samaria? And the answer is very simply is because Jesus had a date with the woman at the well at High Jesus, unlike most of his countrymen, was willing to go anywhere where there were broken people and a need in order to give them the gift of God. When Jesus got there, we see that he breaks down not only the geographical barrier, but he breaks down the social barrier. In fact, he breaks down a few social barriers here. We're told that he goes and sits down. Verse 6, we're told Jesus went... Weary from his journey, which is a clear testimony that although Jesus is God, he also was man. He was tired. God doesn't get tired for walking about 20 miles, but Jesus did. And it was hot. So he sat down by the well. And then we pick up in verse 7, while Jesus is sitting there, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now think about this woman for a moment. She already has three strikes against her. In softball, she'd have already been out because you only get two strikes. But she was a Samaritan, and we've already talked about why Jesus, being a Jew, would have nothing to do, should, I, I mean, both sides understood there was no communication. They didn't communicate, didn't care. Second, she's a woman. And it was scandalous for a woman to have any kind of interaction with a man that was not her husband or one of her family members. It's not entirely unlike the Shia Muslim culture that we see that exists in the world today, where women are protected from the outside world, and there is no interaction, and any type of interaction would be considered incredibly scandalous, <laughs> and we see that evident within the text. The woman herself, when she, when Jesus asked for a drink, she asked the question, how can you ask a, a, a Samaritan woman? And then if you were to read further, after where we stopped today, when the disciples showed back up on the scenes, they are stunned and they are scandalized and they begin to talk amongst each other about what's going on here. And they don't even say anything about the fact that he's talking to a Samaritan. They're kind of whispering to each other, he's talking to a woman and they didn't get it. And so that was an incredible barrier that he crossed over to enter into this conversation with her. And then the third barrier as if the first two were not significant enough, is that this was the woman in that town who wore the scarlet letter. may not have been an A for adultery, but it certainly would have been a U for unclean in broad, all sorts of categories. And we, if you pick up in verse 16, you see some of the details as to her own life. She had been married five times. I don't think she outlasted them because she wouldn't have been as hurt and broken as she was. And now she was living with some guy who she was not married to. And anyone who would have come into this town would have known that she was somebody who had an unsavory reputation. Now, it's quite possible that since she was a player, she dressed like one, so she just looked like it with her dress or makeup or whatever it is. I have no idea what that would have looked like. But even if that was not as evident to outsiders, one thing was clear to everyone. The fact that she was at the well at high noon was an indication there is a problem here and that nobody cares for her. Nobody wants to be around her and she doesn't want to be around them. You see, nobody goes to the well at high noon. I mean, it's too hot and it breaks up the workday so it becomes unproductive. The cultural pattern was mostly women, sometimes children and occasionally men, but anybody that was going to draw water for the family, they would go first thing in the morning while it was still cool. And everybody would be there at the same time. It was a social gathering within the village. People would talk, gossip, catch up, talk about what their plans were, they would draw the water, and then they would go about their day, and they would disperse. And late in the afternoon, or as the sun was coming down, when it cooled off again, they would regather at the well, and they would talk again about the day, any gossip they forgot to pass on before. And then they would draw the water that they would need for the evening. This was the pattern that they had. But nobody would come to the well in the middle of the day because it was, one, too hot and because it would just be inefficient for their work day. But this woman was here at noon. And the only reason anybody would come to this place at noon is because this is somebody who has the same need for water as anybody else but doesn't want to be around the people and probably has the clear indication that they don't want to be around her either. Somebody who's trying to avoid being in some place where she knows that people are talking behind her back and they're whispering and pointing. Somebody who has been ostracized and outcast. That person and that person alone would go to be by themselves to make sure that they had what they needed, but they also could be alone. And so it was quite obvious when Jesus is encountering this woman that there are a number of social barriers because she's a Samaritan, which is unclean in the South. She is a woman, which is scandalous, and then she is a a woman with a a reputation who's rejected even by her own people. See, Jesus was there for her. Jesus had come to help. That's why he had to be in Samaria. He was there for her and he was there to kick down the barriers for anybody to experience the grace of God and we see in this passage just as there is no place that Jesus will not go there is no person to whom Jesus will not connect but it also begs a question for you and for me where will you not go and to whom will you not go see we all have our limits We may not be conscious because we may not have been challenged. I don't even necessarily mean any place in the world where would you not go, but even places locally, places where nice people don't go, where the people who are there are too different. They make us uncomfortable. Or perhaps we even hold, whether conscious or not, I hope somebody goes, but they're not worth my discomfort to go and to reach them with the compassion of Jesus Christ. See, in the face of the reality of what Jesus comes to kick down, we have to stop and ask ourselves, where is our limit? Because if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to go where he goes, and he's going to places that we don't want to go. And so it's important that we don't just learn that lesson that Jesus goes where. We need to ask, where don't I want to go? Now, I'm not gonna make the same promise that a friend of mine did, that wherever you say, that's where you're going next. A friend of mine was pastor in Boston, and uh, he'd grown up in the Chicago area. His wife uh, had grown up in the Northeast in a Jewish family. He'd become a believer. And he was pastoring in Boston, and they were on the way to go visit his brother, who was a surgeon at Emory University in Atlanta. And they stopped at some diner outside of Greenville, South Carolina. And so the, apparently the bluegrass music was raging. The waitress's teeth, she didn't put them in. And um, his wife just said quietly... Never, never, never try to get me to move here. Two years later, he was the pastor of Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And so he had told me that when I was a young pastor, that, you know, be careful. I said, all right, well, I'm not going to Hilton Head. So anyway, that's, um, so, and I haven't. So see, it doesn't work that way. But we do need to be aware. And to be conscious. Because the way the gospel works, and we'll see this here in a moment, is it begins to work its way out in every aspect of our life, and we recognize, it only we recognize where we're weak. And so I'm not bringing this up to shame you. I'm bringing this up so that you can be real and allow God to be at work on you. What are your limitations? Because we all have. But then we see what is an obvious necessity. Jesus having kicked down the geographical barrier and kicked down the social barriers, he now breaks through the relational barrier, and we see that in verses 7 through 15. It's really kind of an overlap here. And it is a necessity, because our God is not just God in truth and presents truth, but our God is relational. He has sent his son to reconcile us to himself. There is a relationship dynamic there. It's not enough to just know the truth, but to know God is to have that connection with him. And as we look at this, it's really kind of interesting because Jesus, is the as the Son of God, is the only perfect man to ever walk the earth. He's the only perfect ten. He is fully clean because he is the only person who is holy. And now he is on this unclean ground, and this woman is approaching him while he's at the well, and it wouldn't have been shocking to see the scene unfold like this, for Jesus to say, that's close enough. I'm here because God is compassionate, and I know that you have need, and I'm here uh, to provide your needs. So if you'll just kind of sit down over there and let me talk to you. If you have any serious questions, you can raise them, but mostly just kind of listen and pull out of his pocket this little pamphlet and ask, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And, and, um, and just kind of work through these true principles that she then would process in her mind, but their hearts are totally unengaged. That's not what God is calling us to, and that's not the way that Jesus works or that God works. Jesus enters into a relationship so that there is a connection, so that the truth that God offers is going to a fertile field, not just a curious mind. And Jesus begins in a way that's sort of shocking to us because he says, give me a drink. It's not a question, but that was the culture. That would have been what expected That was if it was in our you know, Western culture today. Most likely Jesus would have used that appropriate protocol and he would have said, look, it's hot out there. I've been walking a long time. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I, I don't have anything to draw water with. Would you please um, draw me some water so I can have something to drink? So Jesus was just using the protocol there. But what was really was amazing is that he asked in the first place that he would initiate a conversation. Uh, with this particular woman and, and she's stunned by it and we see that by her reaction now We need to step back and look at this interaction from her perspective for a moment How is she seeing this she sees this guy she knows he's a Jewish guy You know wrong side of town. What's he doing here? Her her background would have basically said If, if she'd have known that he was a rabbi uh, This is like one of those televangelist guys who gets caught in a hotel room in New Orleans I've seen it before, and I can handle this guy, but, you know, she's she's hard, she's worldly, she's capable, she had, knows men, and she knows the worst of men, and she sees the world and very definitely would see Jesus through that filter. And so when he asked the question, her perspective is quite likely, this guy's hitting on her, as if You know, Jesus has a a new pickup line. You know, hey, babe, I left my bucket at home. Buy me a drink. You know, that's kind of, I don't have any lines. I don't know if that's a good one or not, but that's, um, but that would have been her perspective. And if that seems scandalous that I would put it in such earthy ways, then you get an idea of how scandalous this was, that Jesus was entering into this relationship here by by even speaking with her but again she's got the shell she's seen guys she can play along and that's what she sort of does she's both sassy and she's a little flirty and she's responding you don't even have anything to draw water first she says how can you a jew you know basically it's you know that's she is saying to him you're kind of lost aren't you wrong side of town what are you doing in in this neighborhood and she points out you don't even have anything to draw you know water with and And so she's playing along with them. And yet, because of that, there is a relational connection, and that's when Jesus turns the conversation spiritual. And so we see Jesus' first part of this uh, uh, passage, and he's knocking down barriers that have to be knocked down for anyone to receive the gospel. And now... We move into Jesus explaining his offer of the living water. He explains to us the glory and the beauty and the promise of the gospel as well. Because after she says, why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus then says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, some people look at this passage and in, in that statement, and what they read. It's not entirely wrong, but it is so inadequate. Is that what Jesus was saying is, if you'd have known who was asking, instead of just settling for this well water, if you'd asked me, I'd have given you the spring water. In other words, I'd have given you the good stuff if you had just only asked. And the principle that's taken away there is a biblical principle, if you don't ask, you don't get but if we look at this passage and we think that that's all that it is telling us, we miss the glory of God in this interaction here. It's also easy to just overlook the spirituality, the hunger that this woman had. Most of us perhaps would. I mean, she's morally questionable, she's hard, and you know, how how seeking would she, how much spiritual interest would she have? And that's a tendency that many of us fall into when we see people who don't seem to measure up, isn't it? Jesus was aware of a reality that is a universal truth. Blaise Pascal was often quoted as saying this is a God-sized vacuum in the heart of every man that only God can fill. The only problem with that quote is Blaise Pascal never said that, but that's besides the point, and I don't even care this morning, because the principle's true, whether he said it or not. He did say something similar. It is true. All of us have this hunger. Some of us have tried to quench it, satisfy it with other things. But there is this hunger that only God can fill, and he was aware that that was true in this woman, and this woman then shows, and we see, because we're able to see the whole picture, the evidence. One, she was aware of their spiritual history. Our father Jacob, are you greater than him? So she had an appreciation for one of the patriarchs. She was aware of the cultural religious boundaries of clean and unclean. And then as the interaction goes on, we'll deal with it next week more, but when her heart is pricked, she begins talking about theological things. She asks theological questions. She has some knowledge. She may not be welcome in most churches, but she has a spiritual heart, and that is an indictment on us to be able to ask ourselves as the body of Christ here, would this person be welcome in our church? or if you are somebody who is showing up here, whether somebody dragged you or you're hungry but you're just not sure, but you wrestle with the whole idea that if people really knew you or knew your background that you'd be rejected, then shame on us for giving anybody the impression that we have our act together. We are all broken and in need. This woman represents us. We all have that same need in our lives. She shows the spiritual hunger she has in this interaction with Jesus. And then she essentially is asking another question. Why are you a Jew asking me? Behind that question is this question. Are you so thirsty that you're willing to become defiled and unclean to quench it? And what Jesus says is, no, you are so thirsty that I am willing to become defiled and unclean to quench it. This is the love of our God. She's broken. She's hungry. And Jesus elaborates. And he goes on and he says in verse 13, everyone who drinks the water, this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus here is using a metaphor. He's not talking about quality of water that well water is stagnant and and spring water is fresh and refreshing and more nutrients. He's not talking about that though. That part is also true, but he's pointing out a reality that is not only true for her but for all of us. We are so prone to try to find our sustenance, our refreshments, our comforts, our nourishment, our identity, our purpose things that we can draw from sometimes we do it through our hobbies our work or our wealth or any number of things we have this hunger we pick up something we pour ourselves into it for a time it seems to be satisfying that need that we have but over time it's not that we don't like what those things are anymore but we realize that hole is still there Jesus was speaking to her spiritual condition, not about the well. He's speaking to our spiritual condition. And he's saying, look, if you, you can do anything you want in this life, but it's not going to fill that hole. But if anybody was to drink from the water that I give, the gift of God that I give, that alone will satisfy. They will never thirst again. That line itself is confusing, too, at at times for some people. It's not that he's saying that those who are believers will never thirst or never want more of God and more spiritually. The psalmist declares, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. So it's perfectly appropriate for us to hunger and thirst for more and more of God. But what he's promising here is that the nature of the gospel is such that as the seed is planted and as it blossoms, we will never go thirsty again because the resource is not something we need to go do, but something that is within because Jesus is also in this passage using the whole idea of living water, promising that those who believe in him, the gift of God, is not only salvation to eternal life, but unlike any other religion in the world, God in the person of the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within all who believe. And the Holy Spirit is there forever and dwelling and at work and flourishing up into every aspect of our being, overflowing. That source is constant there. And So when we find ourselves thirsty, either for more of righteousness, or because, for whatever reason, we've been going elsewhere to get our drink, the Holy Spirit is always there. It's, I used to look at this as what the promise was like, you know, Willy Wonka's everlasting gobstopper. You know, once and it's just all there is. And I guess there's some truth, but it's, it's not about that. It's a it's picture of the promise of God's Salvation and the gospel and the Holy Spirit within us. The question that we need to ask ourselves is this, have you ever drunk from that spring? Or are you one that continues to draw from the well? Your identity is in your work. You put in the labor, you get certain results. It meets your needs, but you need to continually go back and you're finding yourself continually thirsty. So the whole well becomes a metaphor for our works as opposed to God's grace. Well, perhaps you are thirsty as I often am. And it's not just for more of God's righteousness, but it's I become parched. It seems to happen on a sunny mornings sometimes as my throat gets dry. That is a wonderful metaphor for my spiritual life. The fact that it seems to happen every week, well, that tells you more about my spiritual life than I really want you to know. There's a reason for it. For me, and maybe for you. And it's the same problem that Israel had. Jeremiah addressed it in, in Jeremiah 2.13. The Lord declares this to his people. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Get the connection there. God is the source of all the living water that we receive as a gift. and They had forsaken it. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that that cannot hold water. And the picture of Israel is the picture of our lives needing to be reminded and pointed out. God blesses us with more grace than we can even grasp with the promise of overwhelming us. And there are no boundaries because it's from here to eternity, even to the heavens itself. And we have tasted that drink, but for whatever reason, we say, God, thank you. I'll be back. I've got to go dig a hole. And we go dig our own holes, and we drink constantly. We constantly return for our identity, our comfort, our purpose to our own works, our own labors, and what other people think. And in so doing, we think it's not that big of a deal, but God says it's an evil. Because in order to do that, we have to reject God, who has given us the living water. And so the challenge for you today and for me today is to ask, am I thirsty? Have I, one, ever tasted of this living water? And if you don't understand what that means, it's God's gift. that comes to you simply by believing the Holy Spirit is within you. Second, it's reminding us over and over again of God's grace and God's provision as our hope. And not, we got to work out things for ourselves and God will help those who help themselves. That is a heresy that has robbed people of joy and of power and of nourishment and yet it's one we're all prone to. And if you are in that condition, as I often am, then this is an invitation to you to recognize the foolishness of that and turn back to the glory and grace given to us as a gift in Jesus Christ whose Holy Spirit is in you and welling up so that you and I would never thirst. And this woman responds in a way that we ought to. She's saying, I may be the biggest fool in the world to buy into some kind of a promise like this, but I am so desperate and I am so broken. If there is any chance that there is something out there that will keep me from having to come out here at noon, and there's implications of that, which means keep me from having to come back here, something that will overcome my past, my failures, my mistakes, to make me whole, to make me normal, to make me acceptable again, I'm not sure I believe it, but I'll bite. I want that water. And that is the response for all of us who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Our desire glorifies God when we find it in our satisfaction. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks to you. For you are amazing. A love that we cannot comprehend, a gift that continues to give and we haven't even scratched the extent of it and you forgive and you restore when we are people are prone to wander just trust in ourselves give us the grace this day to trust in your gift and experience the joy, the refreshment and the nourishment that comes from the promise and the gift of the living water in Christ to your glory we pray